This morning is our uh, final installment in our four-part Advent sermon series entitled Unheralded Heralds. Uh, If you've been here, we've been considering together the examples of four of the more overlooked, underappreciated characters in the nativity story and specifically what they have to teach us, you and me, about heralding the good news, about being a messenger for the gospel. So uh, Zechariah taught us that first and most importantly, we've got to believe before you can testify the good news to others, you've got to trust in the Lord for yourself. Two weeks ago, his wife, Elizabeth, taught us the importance of righteousness, humility, obedience, worship, and being spirit-filled, being a blessing to others for those who would herald God's word. And then last week, Simeon showed us that a herald must look for the Lord, live by the Spirit, lead with boldness, live, uh, listen for God's word, and then let others have the truth of the gospel. Don't, don't be afraid, be bold to share the truth of what God has done for us. And so that all brings us to our final unheralded herald for this morning, the prophetess Anna. She is by far the most unheralded of these four heralds. Luke devoted 35 verses to Zechariah and his part in the story, 25 verses to Elizabeth's role in the nativity, 14 verses to Simeon last week, and just three verses to Anna. She's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, just these three little verses. So I know what some of y'all are thinking. Are you really going to spend an entire 40-minute sermon on just three verses? And if you're thinking that, you don't know me very well, and you haven't been at West Hills very long. I figure if uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones could spend five entire sermons on just one verse from Romans, then... Anna deserves her 40 minutes of fame this morning. So I will just remind you, though, before we even dive in, why we do this, why we gather to study God's Word together. We don't study God's Word for mere mental stimulation. We study it for heart transformation. That the aim of our study this morning is not simply more information about some obscure biblical character from two millennia ago, Our goal this morning ought to be to read ourselves into her story, into Anna's example, because Jesus has left us, his church, his messengers here on earth to spread the good news of his salvation from sin to every corner of the earth. And so there's a reason that God wrote this old, peculiar, otherwise unknown woman from all of human history, into the greatest story of all time. It's because she has so much to teach us about faithful heralding, even in just three verses. And so we come to God's word again this morning, expecting him to speak to us, to move in us, just as God's spirit moved Anna to make her a witness to Christ's birth and moved Luke to compel him to record her story for us in his gospel, so too this morning again we ask God's spirit to move in our own hearts to help us understand his word, to help us internalize his word, to take it to heart, and then to apply his word. We want to live it out in our lives this week. Understand, internalize, apply. So 
with that. So would you stand with me as you're able for the reading of God's word from Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38. Hear the word of the Lord. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again this morning for your word. We thank you for the example that it holds up to us, the example of saints that have gone before us like Anna, whose lives are worth imitating. Yet, Father, we thank you that your word also convicts us. You tell us your word is sharper than a double-edged sword piercing through to our soul, helping us to see our sin and helping us to see our need for a Savior that we have failed to live up to. The example and the high calling that you've left us with. And so we need a Savior, and we thank you that you've given us one in Jesus. That's our deepest prayer this morning, that you would show us Jesus in your word. We need not just an example to follow, but we need the reminder that when we fail to follow, we have a Savior, a Savior who has died for our sins. We thank you for Jesus. Would you make much of him? in your word, by your spirit, this morning as we open your word together. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I have four, four final attributes for you of a faithful herald from Anna's example. Four attributes. Number one, a herald knows their role. Be an effective witness. We need to know our role. Anna knew her role, and we know why it was her role. So let's start first with her role. Verse 36 informs us that she was a prophetess. That was her role, a prophetess. A prophetess is a female prophet, a spokeswoman for God. It's no small thing. Prophets were God's appointed messengers to whom God spoke directly and through whom God spoke indirectly to his people in the Old Testament. The prophet Amos had stated in chapter 3 verse 7 that the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. This is how God worked in the Old Testament, was to reveal his word through his appointed messengers. And we know of at least 11 prophetesses in scripture, female prophets, five in the Old Testament, six in the New Testament. But Anna stands alone this morning as the only named prophetess in the New Testament. Now, there's an interesting wrinkle to note in her story and, and in her role as a prophetess. 
And that is the fact that for more than 400 years since the close of the Old Testament canon of Scripture, God had not spoken to his people, Israel. God wasn't speaking through prophets anymore in Anna's day up until Christ's birth. The Old Testament concluded with the prophet Malachi foretelling a future prophet who God would send in the spirit of Elijah, and then the prophet Isaiah predicted of that same future prophet that he would prepare the way for the Lord out in the wilderness. They were prophesying about John the Baptist, about Zechariah and Elizabeth's cousin, uh, sorry, son, Jesus' cousin, who would call Israel to repentance on the eve of Christ's arrival. But from that prophecy about John the Baptist, from Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter in your Old Testament, up until Matthew chapter 1, the first chapter of the New Testament, 400 years of silence from God have passed. No prophets, at least not any prophecies. If, if prophets are the mouthpiece of God and God is not speaking then prophets have essentially been out of work for four centuries at this point. So I just want you to keep that in mind for context. It's going to be important. We're coming back to that in a second. Why was Anna a prophetess? Verse 37 tells us it was because she was a widow. Her role was a prophetess, and the reason is because she was a widow. She was advanced in years, verse 37, she's old, having lived with her husband seven years, from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. I mentioned last week that the customary age for a young woman, to a young Jewish girl to be betrothed at this time period was around age 13, 14. And so we assume that Anna lived with her husband for seven years until she was about 20, 21, early 20s. And then all alone as a widow from that time forward. Now, the ESV translates that it was until she was 84 here, but the Greek paraphrase seems to suggest actually that Anna lived another, another, an additional 84 years as a widow. And so most scholars believe, and I believe, that Anna was actually well over 100 years old by the time we meet her here in Luke chapter 2. And what has she been doing all that time for 84 years since her husband died in his early 20s and she gave up her her common domestic life to become a prophetess first 37 answers she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day that was her role non-stop worship prayer the apostle paul will corroborate this assigned duty for widows, for godly widows, in his first letter to Timothy, later in the New Testament. Paul writes, honor widows who are truly widows. This is 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 5. Paul says, she who is truly a widow, left all on, on her own, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. It was a widow's role. So you can imagine being a young 20-year-old woman in the prime of your life, full of youthful vitality, with all kinds of plans for your future, ready to start a family with your, your beloved husband, until one day 
he doesn't return home from the field. And then, later that night, you get the devastating, life-altering news that all of those plans you had, all those dreams, in a single instant, have been shattered to pieces. What would you do? It would be really easy to blame God, wouldn't it? To become angry and bitter. And that day, remember, a a woman's husband and her children were her livelihood. And now, Anna had been left with neither. Surely, she must have asked the question, God, how could you? How could you let this happen? To my husband, to me, what am I supposed to do now, God? But Anna, the true woman of faith that she was, even before Paul would give us the definitive, divinely inspired answer to her question a generation later, what should you do if you're a widow, left all alone? You set your hope on God and continue in prayer night and day. A century before Paul commended it, Anna exemplified it. She modeled it. She didn't just scream her questions angrily into the void. Anna genuinely sought the Lord's will. She sought his word. She sought his way for her life. And then she listened and she obeyed. She said, God, this certainly wasn't my plan for my life. My husband dies at age 20, leaving me childless to serve as a prophetess for the next 84 years of my life. Oh, by the way, during a period of time when you haven't spoken to your people through the prophets for 400 years, this wasn't the way I envisioned my life playing out. This isn't the role that I had wanted to play, but not my will, but yours be done. Oh, Lord. Maybe some of you this morning can relate to Anna. You didn't envision your life turning out this way. This wasn't the role that you thought you had signed up for. You took the first job that you could find straight out of college, thinking you just get your foot in the door somewhere while you discovered your true passion. But three or four decades later now, You're still filling out the same boring TPS reports, dead-end job, wondering where the years have gone. Or maybe you unexpectedly got pregnant early on in marriage. You had big dreams, goals, career aspirations that you, you had to put on hold, but you told yourself, well, once little Johnny gets old enough to get in school, you know, I can always go back and pursue, you know, my dreams but then y'all decided to have a couple more kids, and before you knew it, your role had shifted to full-time, unpaid, chef-slash-maid-slash-chauffeur-slash-nurse-slash-teacher-slash-professional-butt-wiper. Not the role you signed up for, or maybe you just feel totally inadequate for and ineffective in your God-appointed role as a herald of the gospel. You come to church every Sunday and you're you're moved and you're inspired by this this high calling, this responsibility that God has entrusted you with to proclaim his salvation to the nations. 
But then you always leave church feeling a little guilty because you know the reality is that you're not going to the nations. You struggle, if you're honest, to even witness to your next door neighbor, to your coworker in the cubicle over, your friend at school, and you think, well, maybe that's easy for you, pastor. We're all supposed to be heralding the gospel. Well, you get paid to do it. You went to school to train to do it. God's given you a platform for it every week. The rest of us down here, we don't have 200, 300 people lining up, congregating every week for the express purpose of listening to us herald the gospel. Of course, you can repeat week after week, recite that you'll go and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them. That's all in your job description. But what about me? What role do I have to play in God's kingdom? And if that's you this morning, friend, I hope that you are able to find such wonderful encouragement in the example of little old Anna. That of all the wealthy, powerful, important people that were in the temple square that day, the high priests, the Sanhedrin, the Roman officials, remember, the temple was the center of civic life in Judaism and and in Jerusalem as a whole city. Everybody who's anybody would have been there on this day when Mary and Joseph came to dedicate Jesus as as an infant. But guess what? Not a single one of those other people there gets named, gets mentioned. Not even a mention. Who gets remembered? Who gets honored for all of the rest of human history in God's timeless word? Joseph a poor redneck carpenter, Mary, his scandalously wedded teenage wife, Simeon, a kooky old man without any official role. Simeon wasn't a priest. He wasn't a prophet. He was just some guy that would show up at the temple every day, praying, waiting for the Messiah. And then Anna, a lonely old widow who simply worshiped and prayed all day long, for 84 years. That was her role. That seems pretty insignificant to you and me. Pray all day, every day. It's not insignificant to God. It landed her a spot on the pages of God's eternal word. Friends, God doesn't call the powerful. He empowers the called. God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. What is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast, so that God alone might get the glory from doing what only he can do. When when God chooses a stuttering, impulsive Egyptian by upbringing to lead his people out of Egypt, when God chooses the youngest, smallest, prepubescent shepherd boy to slay the nine and a half foot giant. When God chooses uneducated, simple-minded, faith-lacking fishermen to be his disciples, to lead his church, and to turn the world upside down. This is how God works. Why? To prove that he can. That only he can. That only God can accomplish these things through these kinds of people. Listen, not everyone 
is called to preach to hundreds of people every week. We can't all do that. Not everyone can write five-figure checks, year-end gifts to the church that will single-handedly help West Hills close the remaining gap in our 2021 budget. Not everyone has that role, can, can afford that. Not everyone can simultaneously serve in kids' ministry and youth ministry and worship team and welcome team and AV and etc. like some of y'all do. But the Bible is very clear that we all have a role to play. Every single one of us. Some role. And 1 Corinthians 12, 25 actually says that God gives greater honor to the roles that we tend to think of as less important. God considers them indispensable is the word he uses in 1 Corinthians 12. Indispensable. And I can't help but think here and look out and see our own senior saints here at West Hills. Our own Annas and Simeons at West Hills. Do we really believe as a church that June Nystrom and Gene Briggs, J.R. and Sandy Smith, I'm Jan Deerberg, and go down the list, Sal and Louise and Darlene, all, do we really believe that our senior saints here who have a hard time serving as front door greeters anymore because it's hard to stand for half an hour, it's hard to open the door for people anymore, they are pretty heavy who can't chase down and pick up a toddler anymore in, in children's ministry. Maybe some of you honestly have outlived your, your retirement, your social security. You won't, you'll never be the, the biggest donors to the church. If the only way that they can serve the church anymore is the same way that Anna did, by coming to worship the Lord in his house every single week and by praying night and day for this church, do we really believe that they are just as indispensable as anyone else at this church, as the guy who writes the $10,000 check, as the gal who serves in six different ministries, as the guy up here preaching every week, do we believe they're every bit as indispensable? I do. I do. If I didn't, we wouldn't hold volunteer ministry fairs the week after celebrating the fact that three-quarters of our church are serving somewhere. Most churches would be content Three-quarters of the church serving somewhere? 90% of the church giving financially in the past year? Most churches would just sit around, pat themselves on the back. But I believe we've all got a role to play. And so we're not going to stop bugging y'all until we've got 100% of you serving somewhere, giving something. Because there are no small parts. There are only small people. Don't be a small person. Know your role. Play your part. Number two. You've also got to know your story. Know your story. Luke sees fit here, for some reason, to highlight for us Anna's lineage, her backstory, these details that she was the daughter of a guy named Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. And then, of course, Luke also includes Anna's personal life story that she was married for seven years before being widowed for the past 84 years. Why? Why does Luke bother to include her story, even her, the backstory of this woman who, who seems like such a, a minor character in God's great big story. Well, commentators have tried to make sense of it. Commentators point out that Anna's father's name, Phanuel, 
means face of God, and so Luke must include that detail because Anna was among the first people in history to behold the literal face of God in the flesh on the baby Jesus. Others hypothesize that Anna is the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy in Deuteronomy 33, 25, to the tribe of Asher, that your strength will equal your days. We're a strong tribe, but Anna was really old. Seems like a stretch to me. Here's my theory. Luke includes Anna's story because our stories are important. And because Anna was important to God. Isn't it just like God, again, to give us almost nothing in the way of a backstory for guys like Caiaphas, the high priest who everyone revered, Pontius Pilate, the Judean governor. There's more written about him in the annals of history, secular history, than there, there is in the Bible. But then for God to say, oh, but let me tell you all about this widow named Anna who no one else in the temple courtyard even noticed. Let me tell you about her. Here's her family tree. Here's her life story. Because she was important to God. And because our stories are important. Anna's story made her who she was. It enabled her to serve the role that God had assigned her to play in his story. How about you? Do you know your story? Do you know your story? You better if you're going to be an effective herald of God's story. If you're a believer, then you've got to know your testimony. You've got a testimony to share. A testimony is the way in which God has weaved your story together into his story. How God and his sovereignty and his mercy took your otherwise uncompelling, insignificant little story and redeemed it so as to write you into his own grand, history-spanning, humanity-saving story. Friends, that is no small thing. Don't ever say, well, you know, my story isn't that remarkable. I was raised in a Christian home, professed faith in Christ at an early age. Then I strayed some during high school and college, but God eventually showed me my need for him, brought me back to him. It's pretty typical. Pretty typical. Let me ask you, have you been born again? Have you been born again this morning? Have you died to your sin and been raised to new life in Christ? You have to baptize Daniel, uh, newer, newer uh, believer here, West Hills, this morning, and celebrate his dying to sin to be raised to new life in Christ. I got to preach last week at our young adult ministry here on John chapter 11. Do you remember the story when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Has anyone ever read that story and thought to themselves, eh, pretty typical, pretty unremarkable? It's downright miraculous. Do you realize that is exactly what God has done for you spiritually if you've been born again? Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins, in your trespasses, 
that once defined you, but now God has made you alive together with Christ. I don't care if you're five years old at VBS or you were 25 years old, face down, strung out in a dumpster in some back alley. It's not about how sensational your story is. It's about how sensational your God is. If God convicted you of your sin, convinced you of his sufficiency to forgive your sin through the sacrifice of his son Jesus on the cross in your place and then called you to new life in Christ and gave you a new heart to replace your old dead one, then friends, your story is a miracle. It's a death to life miracle. Don't ever trivialize the work that God has done in your life by minimizing your story. Know your story and then share it. You want to be an effective herald of the gospel? Just share your story. Listen, you don't have to be a world-renowned apologist, defender of the faith, to be an effective evangelist, a sharer of the good news. You don't have to have the perfect answer to every skeptic's question. You don't have to have half the New Testament memorized or be gifted at public speaking to be an evangelist. Just know your story and share it. Here's what God's done for me. Because here's the thing. No one can disprove your story. You want to debate the origins of the universe or the teleological argument? An intelligent atheist is going to bring all the evidence that she needs to find to discredit your position. But when you say, listen, I don't know, all I know is that once my life was a wreck, but then Jesus came in and changed everything for the better, how's someone going to respond to that? What can they say? No, he didn't. (laughs) It's your story. He did. At the very least, they've got to say, wow, that is amazing (laughs) what God did for you. I've never had an experience like that. And they walk away with a lot more to think about. Sharing your testimony is one of the best ways to herald the gospel. Not because your story is so exceptional. Not because you're so great, but because God is so great. And because his wanting you to be a part of his story, his working so as to write you into his story, that is exceptional. Number three. To be a herald, we've got to know our Lord. You must know your role, know your story, but most importantly, you've got to know your Lord. Verse 37b, for 84 years, what was Anna doing? Every waking hour of her life. Verse 37, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting, and prayer night and day. Listen, it's one thing to believe the Lord. It's a whole other thing to know the Lord. We make a a, a big deal out of Mary this time of year, as well we should. Not here to take anything away from, from Mary, mother of Jesus. We all love Mary. Mary believed the Lord when he spoke to her through the angel Gabriel. That's a beautiful thing. She was blessed for it, rightfully so. She succeeded where Zechariah had failed. Remember, he had to be chastised for nine mute months. So I'm not here to to say anything bad about Mary, but I'll just say it's one thing to simply believe, 
when an angel of God, by the way, appears to you announcing good news to you, incredible news, to be sure, but good news, Mary no doubt wanted to believe this news, and it probably helped that God sent a supernatural being as the messenger of the news. I would just say, personally, it's a terrible ringtone. Why would you? Who wants to hear that sound? As a parent of a, of a, of a young child. Anyway, sounded like a crying baby. Where was I? Not here to take anything away from Mary, but I'll just say personally, I don't find Mary nearly as impressive as Anna here. Anna, who despite not having any angel show up to her to assure her that God was working all things together for her good, according to his purpose, his plan, her husband's early death, her childlessness, her praying night and day as a prophetess for just a single word from the Lord, yet hearing nothing back for 84 years, silence. Anna, who had every reason not to believe, and yet who not only believed, but who worshipped. She worshipped night and day with fasting and prayer around the clock. How did she do it? How did she sustain that kind of a lifestyle of worship? Because if some of us are honest, we have reservations about going to heaven because we read the Bible's description of sitting around God's throne and worshiping for all eternity, and frankly, it sounds a little boring to us. We come to church, and we struggle to sing with all our hearts for just 15 minutes. Brian repeats that bridge a second time, and we're like, really? I, holy, 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 holy. I get it. Jesus is really holy. How, how, how much are you going to make us sing it? Some of you are looking at your watches now, thinking he said 40 minutes. He's already over 30 minutes in. He's, he's not even halfway through point number three out of four. He's on pace for more like an hour. You know what? If you're going to worship God endlessly for all eternity, I'll just give you some practice this morning. <laughs> Anna prayed all day, every day for 84 years, but God help us if the service goes five minutes over and we miss kickoff. Half the church won't show up if we make them wear masks. What motivated Anna to worship so devotedly like that? I'll tell you why she did it. Because she knew the Lord. She knew the Lord. Polly and I watched a new film, King Richard, this past week. Have you all seen that yet? Really good. New Will Smith biopic about Venus and Serena Williams, their upbringing, particularly their father, Richard. Highly recommend it, especially if you're a tennis fan like me. But I'll be honest, I was never a huge fan of Venus or Serena, mainly for superficial reasons. I didn't like all their grunting when they hit the ball. Didn't seem very ladylike. I didn't like their outfits. Not very modest. But after watching this movie, I feel like I know them now. I feel like I see the Williams sisters in a whole new light. It makes me want to go back in time and re-watch their matches so I can cheer for them this time, knowing all that they had to overcome to achieve all that they did. It's extraordinary. 
Now imagine that instead of getting to know a couple of girls who can hit a tennis ball really hard, you're getting to know the almighty God of the universe who not only created it all, who not only sovereignly rules over it all, sustains it all, but who personally entered into this broken mess of a world that we had wrecked with our sin in order to rescue us at the highest cost imaginable, the life of his only perfect son and who did it all because of his unexplainable and undying love for you and for me. Friends, knowing him makes Worshiping him, very easy. Knowing that kind of a God, personally, as your father, it makes repeating the chorus a third time. It makes a 50-minute sermon. It makes 84 years of around-the-clock worship feel insufficient, feel lacking. The sky is your canvas, earth your footstool, heaven is your throne. But condescending endured the cross to make our hearts your home. A God so great and yet so good, my soul can scarce believe. All praise I'd sing, yet still not bring all your ode to receive. God deserves it all. All praise and honor and glory, all our hearts, our minds, our souls, our strength, our entire lives. He deserves it all. And to know God is to love God, and to love God is to want to share God's love with others because we want everyone else to know him too. Those who herald the Lord most publicly and most passionately will be those who know the Lord most personally and profoundly. Lastly, number four, a herald must know their commission. Know your commission, your charge, your calling. We all have a unique, distinct role to play. Each of us may herald the gospel differently in our own particular ways in accordance with our God-given giftedness and wiring. But at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, we have all received the same commission. You know it because we recite it every single week to go and make disciples. The question isn't if we've been commissioned to herald. The question is how we have been called to herald. But in every case, your answer to that question personally, how is God calling you to share his good news, it will boil down to the same two basic responsibilities. It's the same two tasks that Anna devoted herself to after finally hearing God's answer to her prayers, after seeing his answer to her prayers in the flesh, the baby Jesus, and holding him in the first half of verse 38 here, it says, and coming up, presumably, uh, she's coming up out of praying in the temple. At that very hour, it says she beholds the child, her long-awaited Messiah, after 84 years of nonstop prayer, and what is her response? Two things. She began to give thanks to God, and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. She worships and she witnesses. 
she worships, she gives thanks to God, and she witnesses, she tells everyone who will listen about Christ's arrival. Friends, that is our common shared commission still today as heralds of God's good news the good news of what he has done for us in the person and the work of his son Jesus to adopt us as his very own children into his kingdom of light. We ought to worship him for it and we ought to witness to others about it. Know your role, know your story, know your Lord, and know your commission. Church, may we be like Anna unheralded heralds, unremarkable messengers of a remarkable God, insufficient worshipers of an all-sufficient Father, imperfect witnesses to a perfect Savior. Amen.